I'm Mel Kettle, and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values, and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. My guest today is Dominic Quartuccio. I think I've pronounced that right. Got it. All the way from New York. <laughs> Thanks to the absolute wonders of technology. Dom is an international speaker, author, mentor who focuses on elevating performance and short circuiting burnout. He is also the co host of his own podcast, Man Amongst Men. And if you're a man or if you're a woman who has a man in her life who she loves, I highly recommend you check out his podcast. Welcome, Dom. Mel, thank you. And I'm missing my Australian friends. It's been since February, so I need to get myself back down there, stat. We miss you. Please do come back. Are you planning to come back soon? May actually be in November, more likely in February, though. Oh, well, if it's in February, <laughs> you can help me celebrate my 50th birthday in February. And wow. I say that through gritted teeth and <laughs> disbelief. <laughs> I celebrated my 40th this past year and uh, oh, stop man, it. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. It is. It's just a number. And 50 is the new 30, apparently. So I'm. Um, I don't really have any desire to relive my 30s, but I'm excited about 50 and what the future holds. <laughs> yeah, and I'll help you ring it in and the future's bright for you, Mel. That would be great. Thank you. So my first question that I ask all of my guests is what is connection to you? Yeah, I love this question. And depending on what year you ask me this question, right? If it was 30 years old, it would be very different than the way I'd answer it right now. You and I were talking about this before the podcast hit record for me right now, it's really about connecting with myself. And for a good period of time in my life, as a man who prided himself on performance, whether it was on the sporting field growing up or in the classroom, performing for my parents, being the most well-behaved kid and getting feedback, performing in the workplace with titles and sales goals and bonuses and rewards, I played into a default reward system that I didn't really define for myself. And actually, when I arrived at the age of 30, I hit a financial pinnacle at work. I tripled my sales goal. I was the number one performer in the company at that point in time. I was working for a Fortune 100 firm. And I also felt really disconnected from that success. It didn't light me up. I didn't know why I felt so numb to it. And over these last 10 years of doing inner work, it's really been about connecting with what lights me up, defining my path, experiencing emotions, which a lot of men are not encouraged to do. And through connecting with myself, inevitably, I have forged some of the deepest connections with the most important people in my life. And that expands from business to personal to family all across the board. Yeah, I love that. A couple of things. I worked with a woman years ago who said to me, what do you do when you've achieved all of your professional goals by the time you've turned 30, which she had? And I looked at her and thought, I'm so far from achieving mine at 30. <laughs> I can't relate to that. But it was really interesting and I've watched her over the last, I don't know, 15 or so years as she approaches 50 and her life today 
is so different to how it was then. And I think that like you, she's done a lot of that inner work and self-reflection on what is important to her. And shortly after we had that conversation, she got married. And then a couple of years later, she had the first of her two children and she had to have IVF and a lot of support to have her two children. And I think it really helped her identify or clarify what was important. And I think everybody goes through that at some stage. Well, maybe they don't. Does everybody go through that at some stage in their life? It's actually, yeah, I'm glad you caught yourself. Um, the work that I do, I come across a lot of people who don't ask the question. There's this nagging sense of this isn't all that there is. I'm not fully satisfied with what I'm doing, even though I should feel grateful about the life I've built for myself, but I don't know what other path to take. So I'm just going to stuff that down and ignore it. And the way that I see particularly a lot of men ignoring it is they'll double down on work, become workaholics. Women do this too. I work with a lot of high-performing women in male-dominated businesses. They'll do that same thing, or they'll throw themselves into other people's needs and double down on, say, their work staff or their aging parents or their kids or community organizing events. And it's all in the sense of stabbing around and trying to find an answer to that existential angst. And typically you can run from that for quite some time, but then it catches up to most people. One of my most amazing clients, she came to me about five, six months ago. This is a woman who is 43 years old, a top 10 producer, top 10 financial advisor for one of the largest advisory firms in the world, Morgan Stanley, senior vice president. She's run five Ironmans, completed five Ironmans and has two kids under the age of five by all stretches of the imagination, just an absolute all-star. And the reason why she reached out to me is because she ended up in the back of an ambulance, hospitalized with what she thought was a heart attack and almost lost her life the, the way that she felt it at that time. And what it actually turned out to be was just a massive panic attack because she was running herself into the ground, just running around achieving and doing and doing and doing. And financially, she could retire today. And her family could be taken care of. But she needed that jolt, that threatening situation to actually step back and ask that deeper question. And she's radically transformed her life as a result of it, which is a beautiful thing. But the work that I'm most interested in doing is catching people before they end up in that ambulance and not needing to have a collapse or a calamity in order to actually wake up and make those changes. Yeah, I absolutely can relate to that. When I was in my 20s, I was on that track of that woman without the bank account, unfortunately, <laughs> but loved my job. I was a conference, organizing conferences. In a year, I worked for a firm where my team of six and I ran 300 events in 12 months. Wow. And some of them were small, but a lot of them were not. And I was my dinner would be a bottle of wine and the Thai takeaway on speed dial that I'd pick up as I drove past on my way home at seven o'clock. Mm. And then I'd just set up in my living room and do another three or four hours of work before falling into bed at about midnight and wondering where that bottle of wine had gone right. and waking up the next morning at 5.30 to get up and do it again. And I had chest pains all the time and I went to the doctor to just to get a checkup because I was just feeling 
horrible all the time. And he took one look at me and took my blood pressure and said, if you don't make some major life changes, you'll have a stroke before you turn 30. And I was 33 months after that conversation and thought, well, <laughs> there's a wake up call. So I'm really grateful that I went to the doctor and listened to what he said yeah. so that I didn't end up in the back of the ambulance like your client did. Well, Mel, well, you talked about two things that you mentioned were the chest pains and the bottle of wine. And I think it's, it's helpful to, to dive into this a little deeper. Many people have these escaping or numbing mechanisms to help deal with the stresses of life. And that's why I'm so passionate about helping people short circuit their own burnout trajectories. And for you, it might have been the bottle of wine. For other people, it could be binging on Netflix. It could be emotional eating. For a lot of men, it can be pornography. And in other, in other places, like I said before, workaholism, so just diving deeper into it to try and ignore it. And these physical ailments, like you, know, you were having the chest pains, unfortunately here in the United States, there's so many prescriptions that are available like very quickly to grab a drug or an opiate of some kind where you can easily medicate that pain and and, and then deal with it and push it off until something more tragic happens. Or I would say even worse, that you you can dole out that torment over the course of your entire life and not change anything, right? I mean, like you were fortunate enough to have that wake-up call where some people don't even go to the doctor and are still working those late nights, drinking the mm. bottle of wine every day, and 20 years later, they're still doing that. Yeah, I think I was really lucky for a couple of reasons. And one of the biggest was that I went to the doctor and I listened, but also that while he was a Western trained doctor, he was also trained in Chinese medicine and he was not a doctor who handed out prescriptions freely. And I'm really grateful for that because it would have been really easy for him to have said, take this and come back in a couple of months time instead of, well, let's look at the root cause of this problem because there's no physical, like my heart was fine. I went to see a cardiologist and did stress tests and had all the heart checks, which alleviated a lot of my stress about the chest pains. <laughs> but he also said, let's look at the lifestyle problem that has led to this and what changes do you need to make? And are you happy to make some lifestyle changes? And if you are, this is what I recommend. So the fact that he was so willing to have a conversation that didn't involve medication is something I'll forever be grateful for. Yeah. And it was a beautiful thing that you went, you got the help, you had the proper counsel. And let's tie this back into your original question about connection. There are so many people who are suffering in silence with their own versions of what you just described. And I know this because you know I, I speak on a lot of stages. I train a lot of groups. I lead a lot of men's groups and women's groups. I'm running a women's retreat here in a few weeks in New York City. And it's amazing when people pull me aside and they open up about stuff, whether it's their anxiety or closet depression or some sort of compulsion or addiction of some kind, because that's also in my history. And I speak openly about that on my podcast. You'll find how many people feel like they're alone with this stuff. And because of that, there's guilt, there's shame, there's secrecy, and then there's a doubling down on that very same thing because the, the thing you're guilty about also happens to be the salve for, uh, for that guilt. And so it's just, it perpetuates itself. And so the, a big part of 
why I'm passionate about doing what I'm doing is to connect people, pull it out of the shadows, allow folks to know it's it's all good. A lot of people are dealing with this stuff. And the only shame is if you don't step forward and, and take care of yourself. Yeah. Like you, I work with a lot of leaders and I stand on lots of stages and have people open up to me a lot about their challenges and problems and frustrations and fears. And one of the overriding comments that I hear is, I'm really lonely. I'm really lonely in my job. Um, Particularly, I hear that from CEOs who say, I have no one to talk to about the challenges and the problems and the frustrations and the joys of doing my job. I can't talk to my partner because he or she doesn't understand. They can listen, but they can't give me advice because they don't get it because they haven't been in that role can't talk to my board because they could fire me if they think I'm incompetent. I can't share it with my staff because they look up to me and expect me to know what I'm doing and what I'm talking about. And so I'm just stuck in this sense of frustration and overwhelm. And the loneliness is what is often tipping them over into this sense of, is this all there is? Or I thought it would be better than this. And it's really difficult to get out of that when you're in that. And so I think the more people who can be brave and have the hard and the brave conversations and admit that they're not feeling the way society often expects you to feel when you're in those roles, then the better off emerging leaders will be as well as current leaders who are sharing those feelings. Yeah, uh, you, you've nailed it. I mean, loneliness is is a huge, huge trend that you're seeing amongst big business leaders or even entrepreneurs as well. Everyone actually, I see it everywhere. Yeah. And loneliness is one of the biggest illnesses. It leads to depression. It leads to suicide. And even if, even if, if someone who's listening right now doesn't feel like they would ever go that far down the path, that loneliness absolutely affects your ability to feel connected to your life, to be vibrant, to enjoy what you're doing on a daily basis. And that's why I'm such a big believer in, um, in, in what I call forming your own mastermind or your own women's group or your mm-hmm. own men's group. If you're not familiar with the term mastermind, I believe the first use of it was in Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich, which is an absolute must read for any business leader. And it's basically a distillation of 25,000 interviews that Napoleon Hill conducted over a 25-year career. And this was during the Great Depression era. So, but he, he interviewed all the Thomas Edison and Rockefellers and Carnegie's and Charles Schwab's. I mean, you're talking about some of the most brilliant minds. And he said, the way that you can get out of that loneliness and isolation is by forming a mastermind, bringing together people who are at your life stage, who are positionally appropriate and then have a regular meeting of minds where you can open up and talk about these things. Is it going to require some elbow grease to find those people? Absolutely. To coordinate schedules for busy people, no doubt. But if you're listening to this and you're interested in not feeling lonely anymore, I can guarantee you, and Mel, you even heard it from Mel too, she said, there are people out there who are looking for this. And if you can be the first mover, it'll be a service to you and all the others that are out there looking for a connection. Yeah. And I think for me, I've run a few events like that. They're not masterminds. They're more sort of meetings of the minds where we can just have a conversation about whatever the challenge is that people are facing. 
And the trick for me, or not even not the trick, but I think the key to success is to keep that group small. The feedback that I've had is that I love that it's a small group and the groups that I've had have usually been between about six and 10 people. And that suits introverts who need a small group to feel comfortable in opening up, but it's not too small that people who like to be around people feel excluded. Right on. I actually, tonight, in a few hours, I'm actually going to be going to a men's group that I'm a part of. It's it's our mastermind and it's in Brooklyn, New York. We have seven men and we've been this, this group for mm. 18 months. And we're six of the seven men are single men, men who are either in relationships, but only one man is married with children. So we have a chance to meet every week. Our schedules allow for that to happen. And that intimacy, that size of the group has been astounding for us to get to know one another, but to each have time to go deep. And also there's that level of commitment to one another. So we have that accountability where if the group was larger and you didn't show up, it would kind of be like a shoulder shrug. But in this size group, you know that if you're not there, you're depriving the other men in the group, the, the support. So it's that the size of the group does matter. But I also think if you're not there, you'll be missed. And they'll call you and say, hey, are you okay? We missed you tonight. For sure. And that's really powerful as well. Yeah. I and mean, one of the things that we did, and this, this could go well for anybody who's looking at putting a group together, we said, if you are in New York on the night of the meeting, you're at the meeting. Otherwise, you get one or two misses. I think we, we actually said two misses and you're out. We said that from the very beginning because a lot of the men in our group travel and travel often. But if you're going to be here, then the priority is you're making it. You're not scheduling anything else. And for that reason, right? I mean, you would be missed. And it was funny, within the first three months of us putting that in, early on, we had a couple of guys who tested that. And we held firm on our stance to say, if you're going to be in New York, you're going to come to those meetings. And those two guys who tested it ended up defecting. They ended up leaving, which was great for them. It was even greater for us because it really solidified our commitment to the group and we've never had an issue with attendance. It's not even a question since then. Yeah, that's fantastic. I've got a friend who is older, probably in his mid-70s now, and when he was about 70, he and his wife moved from Sydney to a small country town with a population of about, I want to say, 50 but I'm sure it's got more than that. <laughs> and we were visiting him earlier in the year and he said to me, I can't join you for breakfast. We were just there for one night. He said, I'm really sorry, but I have breakfast every Thursday morning with a group of men in town at a local cafe and I don't want to miss it. And I said, oh, God, no, of course, go, go, go. And his wife later said to me that men's group has been his savior since we've moved to this small town because it gives him an opportunity every week to meet with and to just have conversation with a group of men who live in the same community. Some of them are the same age as he is. Some of them are older than he is. Some of them are a lot younger and they're all at different stages in their life, but they've all got the same challenges and issues because they all live in this same community, which is struggling with drought and with isolation and feelings of isolation and with other things that are going on. And she said, if it wasn't for that group, I don't think we'd still be living here. And it was really interesting that 
he was really open about the group. But what was really interesting was the benefit that his wife has seen and the, the positive changes she has seen in him over the time he's been going to that. It's beautiful. If a man has a proper support group and has a place to bring some of his insecurities and fears or his dreams and maybe just his minor everyday frustrations, the petty stuff, just a place to put it other than home, it can radically transform the man who actually shows up at home. Yeah. That's been huge for a lot of the men who have done men's work that I know. So do you have any advice for women who have men in their lives who they think would benefit from doing more inner work but are resistant to it or don't know what where to start or don't really know what the phrase doing inner work means? <laughs> yeah, so I, I get this question a lot and I love it. Let me tell you where I see it go wrong first and then I'll, I'll tell you where I've seen it go right. Where I've seen it go wrong is when – Let's say the woman who wants to enroll her her man in something like this, like a like just read a book or go to a workshop or you know start your own men's group. Where I've seen it go wrong is when she tells him you should do that. Here's what you need to do. Or I listened mm-hmm. to a podcast. Here's what you need to do. Or I read a book. I read an article. You need to go do this. So right away he will feel like there's something wrong with him. And men have been trained not to show insecurities or weaknesses. I talk about this in my TEDx talk. I cite Esther Perel, who's an amazing relationship therapist. And she says, masculinity is not this thing that men are just given. Masculinity is something that we have to go out and earn and then prove over and over and over and over again, because we could lose it in an instant. It's kind of like how trust works. You can spend your entire life building trust, but do something, do one thing, and you can lose trust in an instant because it's fragile like that. Masculinity also can be fragile like that. Like you could be a man, a man, a man, a man, and then do something where your buddies will tear you down for it, or you'll look weak and then everyone will question your resolve. So we've been trained to quickly pull out our swords and our shields anytime someone has a slight on us. And if we think even with the woman who loves us coming to us and telling us, you need to read this book or you need to go do this thing, it would be like an admission of a failure or a weakness of some kind, then we will shut that down. We will defend it and we will resist it. And then you'll push us further away from what you were intending in the beginning. So that's where I see it go wrong. Where I've seen it go really well is when, and I'm giving you the blueprint for how it was done to me 10 years ago with a woman who knew me inside, who knows me inside and out is to, is to actually speak to the highest version of that man in a language that he can hear. It's kind of like making a little invitation, dropping little breadcrumbs, letting him gobble them up. Here's what I mean by that. So when I turned 30, this was the year that I I mentioned before that I had the pinnacle of my financial success working for this Fortune 100 company, tripled my sales goal, but I felt kind of dead on the inside. And the only person I could feel comfortable confiding that in was with my friend, Grace Gold. She and I had been a couple in the past for a couple of years. And then we transitioned into a friendship and she was the only person I could share this with. And what she said to me was, she was just like, Hey, Dominic, I know that you are a man who's always striving to be the best. And I know right now you say you're struggling. Well, there are these two books that other like really successful men say over and over again, that these are the keys to their success. Maybe you might want to check them out. It was that gentle. It was like these little invitations 
speaking to the part of me that wants to succeed and then also connecting me with other guys who are very successful. And the two books were The Way of the Superior Man by David Data, which is a book about like how to connect to your purpose, passion, um, and relationships. And then The Four-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And that book taught me how to master my time and my focus and what was important in life. And so she knew how to place, dangle the carrot in front of me that I just would go and and gently gobble that up. And each time she would just level me up a little bit further, never making me feel like I was broken or there was something wrong with me. And she unleashed a monster, you know, the, so, so now I'm, I'm, I'm the one who teaches this stuff. So if you can speak to the highest version of your man in a way that he's capable of hearing it, drop little breadcrumbs and then just keep recalibrating to where he's going, nudge him in the right direction. Hmm. I'm going to try that. I will report back. (laughs) (laughs) All my questions are about my life usually and things I want to learn. (laughs) Yeah. Surprisingly, some podcast guests don't. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best when you can do it selfishly and then also help others at the same time. Absolutely. So I've got a few questions still to go and I think I've only asked you one and I love a podcast where one question sparks this amazing conversation. You wrote a book a couple of years ago called Design Your Future, and you talk about three simple steps we can take to stop drifting and take command. What would they be? Sure. Let me um, dive into this concept of drifting, which I see being one of the major challenges in many people's lives. I wrote this book, Design Your Future. So for the person who felt like they've achieved some level of success and are starting to feel restless or trapped, or bored in the life they've created and want to get much more intentional about designing the next, let's say, 10, 20 years of their lives. And what I found to be this key problem is a term that, once again, Napoleon Hill, author of Think and Grow Rich, termed, which is called drift. So Napoleon Hill's mentor was a man by the name of Andrew Carnegie of Carnegie Steel, billionaire, And he said to Napoleon, if you want to understand the full human experience, then go out and interview tens of thousands of people who at the end of their lives, at the end of their lives, felt like they left chips on the table, like they were failures, like they lived a life of regret and talk to them about how their life decisions ended up leading them there. So he ended up talking about 25,000 people over that 25 year period and he distilled their secrets and wrote the book called Outwitting the Devil. And Outwitting the Devil is actually the number one most important book of my life, most influential book of my life to this point. And I read this passage in the book that forever changed the trajectory of my life. And I read this eight years ago now. The devil is the distillation of these 25,000 people's stories whose dreams were lost. And the devil says, the way that I enter the minds of people is through their habit. And I established this habit of drifting. And once I can get a person to drift, I can lead them straight towards the gates of hell. And what the devil is saying is that we often think that we're making conscious decisions, that we're behind the driver's wheel of our own car, when in actuality, we're not even in like our own passenger seat. We're probably in the back seat. And what's navigating us through our lives is our habits and patterns and unconscious belief systems and the socioeconomic environment that we grew up in and our experiences and our prejudices, that's the stuff 
that's most often creating the reality around us. And it's only when an outside force thrusts itself upon us do we actually wake up from that state of drifting. So for my client who ended up in the back of an ambulance, that was the outside force for you was going to the doctor with your chest pains and the bottle of wine habit. And for others, it's something either more severe or hopefully less severe. And those can be beautiful moments of transformation. But if you're waiting for an outside force to come in and disrupt your life, then you're not really in command of your life. And I don't think it needs to get that far anyway. So what I talk about in the book is how to take command of your life on your terms to break free from drift and intentionally design your life. And the three steps, I'll hit them really quickly and then I'll pause and see if you want to dive in on any of them. The three steps are, I call them ADD, awakening, disrupting, designing. You have to awaken to the areas in which you are drifting. And I use the word awaken and I differentiate that from awareness. You can be aware of a lot of things, but not take action. The way I distinguish awakening from awareness is you are aware and you are ready to take action. So you awaken Mm. from this is no longer the way that I want it to be. I'm no longer willing to deal with these chest pains and going to bed at midnight every night and drinking a bottle of wine. Like I'm not ready to have a stroke at the age of 30. I've awakened to the fact that, okay, I'm now ready to break free from drift and change. When it comes time to disrupting, it's, well, sometimes the path of how to do it differently is not always clear. So the first step is just like disrupting the patterns of behavior that have gotten you to this point. And in this case, I'm a big fan of temporary experiments, temporary abstinence periods. And when I say abstinence periods, I love to teach people, take 10 days off alcohol, take 30 days off of Netflix and television, take a month of don't look at your cell phone for the first hour of waking up or the last hour before you go to bed. And what you will learn through these disruptions is why you do those things. Because when you stop doing those things, all of the desires and cravings will kick up, which will help to really inform why you have those habits and and patterns to begin with. And after you've done that for long enough, you probably have enough information to then take this third step, which is to design the new future that you want to live into. And you can do this with very specific things. You can do this with your relationship with your cell phone. You could do this with your business. You could do this with your diet, with exercise. You can do it in broader scale things with your relationship and your business. So it's proven to be quite a useful book that actually over the last six months, it's sold more than any other six month period. So it seems to be even catching more steam. I don't quite know the reason for it. Maybe it's our podcast that's that's gone live and got out to new audiences. But yeah, it's a a pretty useful book. Well, I read it a little while ago and highly recommend it. It certainly gave me a lot of things to think about. And one of the things I particularly like is that concept of temporary abstinence. A couple of things that I've done, I took Facebook off my phone and just thought, let's just see how long I can leave it off. And I put it back on when I went on holidays so that I could share pictures and updates of where I was, but then took it back off again. And while it's on there again now, I probably look at it for five minutes a day as opposed to that constant scrolling that used to happen. And I think for me, one of the things that I've found with the temporary abstinence of something is that it breaks a bad habit and it can help you create a new one. And that has been really powerful for a few things in my world. So if you're looking at one thing to take away from this episode, maybe try something like that. 
Is there something that you want to either break a bad habit or, you know, Netflix is one that I think a lot of people have. I was horrified when Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, came out, I think, last year and said, our biggest competitor isn't Hulu, it's not Amazon Prime. The biggest competitor of Netflix is that people need to go to sleep. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I thought, right. (laughs) Hadn't thought about it that way, but yes, you are right. So many people. (laughs) You know what's funny about that is I just (laughs) discovered you can disable the autoplay feature on Netflix. You know how when you're watching an episode, it automatically Mm. says like five more seconds, right? Yeah, yeah, you do. Like, yeah, okay. (laughs) I think you have to do this on your desktop, but if you go on your desktop, you can go through the settings. And there's a way to to manage your profile where you can uncheck that box. And I did that about a week ago and I've already reaped the benefits of that. We moved our Netflix TV downstairs. And so when I go down, it's specifically to watch something on Netflix, which means I don't just have it on in the background, which is what I used to do and get distracted by it while I was doing other things. So now if I specifically want to watch something, then I have to go down and I get bored sitting. And so my record for sitting downstairs is normally two episodes of something because then I'm just bored (laughs) because it's not an environment where it's conducive to do anything else. So that's been one of the best changes. And I do every now and then think, oh, I just want to switch TVs and bring it upstairs. And then I think, no, 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 no. Good move by you. (laughs) I've got so much time back because it's downstairs. Smart move. (laughs) And it's cold in winter and it's, yeah, it's uncomfortable couch. And it's like, right, we're going to leave it there. (laughs) Well, I know that uh, at Thought Leaders, James Clear from Atomic Habits, the author of Atomic Habits, spoke at Thought Leaders not too long ago. And one of the things that he talks about is, can you make a an environmental decision once that can then affect potentially thousands of decisions in the future? And you know the example that you just gave about where you've moved your television, if you make the one decision to say the television is moving out of the bedroom, you make that decision once, and then you avoid the thousands of decisions that come along with that over the course of you know each night of, do I watch TV or not? And then when I watch the TV, do I watch one episode or two? So you make that one hard decision once and then boom, like you free up all of that time in the future. Yeah. It's amazing how much time you can get back by not continually watching hours and hours of TV or Netflix. I think TVs in bedrooms don't even get me started. That's just the biggest no-no for me. And I do have to say though, it's very luxurious and decadent when I'm in a hotel and there is a large TV in the bedroom, but I find that I'm so uncomfortable that I end up turning it off and reading a book because it's just (laughs) so wrong. So wrong to have a TV in the bedroom, regardless of what bedroom it is. (laughs) <laughs> Even if it is a single room hotel room, <laughs> I just can't do it. <laughs> See if they can do that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I just have a couple of final questions. You've talked a lot about some books that have really resonated with you. What are you reading now? Yeah, I have a bunch of book lists that uh, I can point people to, and I can, I'll tell you about that in a second. So right now I'm actually reading a few different books. I'm reading Think and Grow Rich from Napoleon Hill. Again, I'm doing actually 90 days of Napoleon Hill. What I mean by that is in the morning, within the first half hour, I'm listening to about 10 to 15 minutes of his audiobook. Also in the evening, because I'm working on some really big things that I want for the next 10 years of my life. And his book is a blueprint for how to create that, how to build a def- definite plan around that. And he's distilled all of the secrets from some of the most successful people of all time. So I love swimming in that and I plan on, I'm on day 
14 now of 90. Um, I'm also reading Toni Morrison's book, Beloved, when Toni Morrison um, has recently passed and she's a Nobel Prize winning author and never had read any of her books, unfortunately, until she uh, until she passed away. And I'm reading that one. It's a heart-wrenching novel about slavery in the United States. I recommend that to a lot of white men. I'm encouraging a lot of men to read outside of their typical genre. Most white men tend to read a lot of books from other white men. And I was one of those guys for a while, unbeknownst to me. And I have a book list that I can offer people. They can find it on my website. It's called doinnerwork.com forward slash books, doinnerwork.com forward slash books. And there's a, a list of 15 books written by women that I encourage men to read. And then I'm putting a book list together for written by people of color that men need to read as well. And that's, you can find all of those at uh, doinnerwork.com forward slash books. Oh, thanks. I'll pop that in the show notes and I'll have a look as well. I'm always up for new books to read, even though I'm not a man. I will check cool. them out. <laughs> so where can oh so I do have one fun other question. And this is one that I haven't sent you, so it's a surprise, a bonus. Ooh. On your website you mentioned that your three vices are pancakes, burritos <laughs> and coffee. Which of those is the biggest vice? <laughs> Pancakes, burritos, or coffee? Wow, that's really good. So, uh, like, I've actually kind of tamed the burrito one. It's definitely oh, down to pancakes and coffee. Coffee, Australia ruined me with coffee. Um, oh, we've got good coffee. <laughs> great coffee. I mean, before I came to Australia, I was, you know, fine with my drip Starbucks coffee. And then I get down to Sydney and Melbourne, and I'm like, I need now, I need to buy a $5 flat white every freaking 10 feet that I walk on the street corners because it's amazing. <laughs> and there's a bunch of Australian places opening up in New York City, like Bluestone Lane and Little Collins that I can go and get my fix while I'm here. So I would say probably the coffee is what I have to deal with on a daily basis like to slow it down. That's funny. I Speaking of temporary abstinences, whenever I go to the US, I have a temporary abstinence from coffee because I just can't cope with American coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm telling you, we're getting, we're, we're actually starting to raise our game. If you come to New York City, I'll point out all of the Aussie places for you. That would be great. Hoping to be there next year for a few weeks. So I will let you know. Awesome. So just finally, you've given us your Do In A Work website address and where else can people find you? The Man Amongst Men podcast is something that we're really proud of. It's primarily geared towards high-performing men who are interested in raising their personal performance, lighting up their love life, and also connecting with their passion and purpose. It seems like half of our listeners are also women because they're very interested in hearing what two guys, I have a podcast partner, named Brian, with two guys who are being very open about our relationship lives, about our insecurities are talking about. So it's equally useful for both men and women. So you can find that on iTunes, on Spotify, the Man Amongst Men podcast. You can also go to doinnerwork.com. That's where our podcast is, all our book lists. And I would say the last place you can catch me, um, and this is where I'm starting to post more and more content, is on Instagram. So if you find me at Dominic Q, I, I think I provided you my handle, and there's a hyperlink there that if you put that in the show notes, people can click on that and follow me there. I absolutely will. And it's Dominic spelled D-O-M-I-N-I-C-K for anybody wondering. Yes. 
Thank you so much. I could keep talking to you for a very long time, but I do need to get to work um, <laughs> because it's nearly 8am here and you probably need to go and get some dinner or think about what your evening plans are for tonight. Yeah, got my men's group coming up, so. Excellent. Well, say hello to them all for me, <laughs> even though I don't know them. <laughs> I will. Really looking forward to seeing you back in Australia soon. If not in November, then hopefully in February. And, um, yeah, hopefully I'll get to New York. My plan is to come to New York as a part of the year of turning 50 celebrations. Nice. Maybe in May in your spring is my plan because that's my favorite time of year in the U.S. So yeah, we shall see. beautiful here in May. Yeah. It is. I think I knew about 10 or 15 people who were there this May and my Facebook and Instagram feeds were full of their photos and it's like, oh, why am I here <laughs> But we shall see. Anyway, thank you, thank you. Have a fabulous night and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks a lot, Mel. See you soon. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn, or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast, and I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at melkettle. See you next time, and stay connected. Bye. Bye.